0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and
1: debate. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thanks very much for coming. Um, I'm really happy to uh, be presenting today's lecture or today's chat with Zaya Tong. Um, I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm Head of Features and Head of Podcasts at New Scientist magazine. Um, So, Zaya Tong, she's going to be talking about her new book, The Reality Bubble, um, this is a really startling look at the world around us about the hidden truths about the world around us. Um, I read it and, and it really really popped my bubble and I thought I was someone quite well informed about the world. So, you know, it's, it's a really startling and, and great read. Um, Zaya is an award-winning science broadcaster. She's best known as the host of uh, The Daily Planet on the Discovery Channel. Uh, she currently serves on the board of WWF International and is former vice chair of WWF Canada. Um, This book has been shortlisted for this year's Charles Taylor Prize and was winner of CBC, CBC Canada Reads 2019. Please join me in welcoming Zaya Tong.
0: Thank you. I have to tell you guys that Rowan and I have been Twitter friends now for several years. So it's a joy to get a chance to finally meet Rowan in the flesh. And also I'm very used to doing the interviewing. So I may just start asking him questions instead. I'm not used to this being an interviewee, but we'll give it a try.
1: Okay, uh, and about questions, um, there'll be plenty of time at the end for questions. So do save up your questions and we'll come to them at the end. Um, look, let's start with the elevator pitch. Tell us in a nutshell um, what the book's about because and it's quite a difficult question because there is so much in it. It covers so much, but what's, what is the elevator pitch for the book?
0: So basically, the reality bubble is about 10 of humanity's biggest blind spots, and um, I've been working in science broadcasting now for about 15 years, and I started realizing that there's a really big gap between what we can see with our own senses, with our eyes in particular, and what the world of science can see with their technologies and tools. And working with scientists in so many different fields, I mean, I think today we know that we can image everything from a black hole to an atom. This is a world, and this is a much bigger bigger reality than what we're able to perceive. So I started thinking, what if I could parse together the sort of pixelated image of the world view that scientists have? What kind of image of the world would I see then? But simultaneously, this is longer than an elevator pitch, I also had a bit of a a bit of an insight one day, which I call a shower thought because I actually did have it in the shower, which is in the 21st century, there are cameras everywhere except where our food comes from, where our energy comes from, and where our waste goes. So how did we become the most powerful species on Earth when we don't even know how we survive?
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the really startling things when, when you think about um, that, that, exa- that exact image really clicked for me when I read it as well, but... Um, and, and you're in Britain now with the highest number of CCTV cameras in the world, right, per capita, or just... That's right, yeah. Um, you know, we, we know everything that's going on, but in these key places, we, we, we don't know what's going on. And that's, that's really weird. We'll, we'll get to that. Um, so one thing that I particularly liked um, about the book was how it punctures the idea that we're an exceptional species, Right. So perhaps you want to let's start off talking about some of those things, about other animals, about why, you know, how our reality can be broadened to understand them better.
0: Right. Well, I think you know that one of the lower range estimates is that there's 8.7, other, 8.7 million other animal species. We are just one among many, and they have so many remarkable different skills that I uh, lay out in the book. But one of the fundamental things that I was quite interested in when it comes to the notion of human exceptionalism in the book is that we are the only species that has given ourselves the right to own the world. Right? We're the only species. We own the food. We own the energy. We own the dimensions of time and space. The only thing we don't fundamentally own is our own waste. And so, yes, there's an immense amount of exceptionalism in the way we treat the world. But at the same time, you know, um, we're not the only species, for example, that can appreciate beauty. Right. Mm. And I think one of the uh, one of the chapters, chapter three, I believe, starts with the story of um, Geza Teleki. And he is a primatologist, and he is, uh, he's basically, one day he's got a day off, and he decides he wants to go and check out the sunset. So he climbs up this sort of a cliff edge, and he's looking at the beautiful sun coming down over the waters on Lake Tanganyika. And he sees these two big chimpanzees coming on either side. And they, they're pantooting, and they greet each other. And they sit down in front of him, and they watch the sunset together. He's just behind them, and he's watching the sunset with these two chimpanzees. <laughs> And he's blown away by something just so basic and so simple that other creatures might enjoy something as simple as a sunset. And yet we here think that, of course, we're the only ones who can do things like that.
1: Yeah, Um, that that reminds me of, uh, I asked a primatologist once um, who studied all the different tools that that primates, you know, all the sticks and things that they use and spears even. Um, Are there any tools or things they have that are are kind of non-functional and he said, "Yeah, there is actually." And he showed me this bit of wood, and it was like it was kind of just looked to me like a bit of wood. But the baby, the young chimps, have been using it as a doll,
2: oh, and you're like cra- me.
1: cradling it.
0: Wow! And
1: um, even putting it to bed.
0: Oh wow! It, you know, because the chimps
1: make nests every night, yeah. And um, and the baby, uh, the the juvenile chimps would would put this like just like our toddlers do. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. So it, it is incredible. The, the 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 depth of their world and the richness of their experience. Um,
0: and so yeah, really just like you, because we're in the same field and we're both doing science communication all the time. I mean, I think in order to reach people, you really wanna reach people through awe and enchantment and wonder. Yeah. And, and that's what so much of the book is about. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, and, and there's lots on the on the sign language and the different languages that that we've taught chimps and bonobos as well, right? Some yeah. of that's really mind blowing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, I mean, I think many people are familiar with Coco a uh, fine animal gorilla who, who died not too long ago, who is able to sign many different words. Mm-hmm. But of course, there's a lot of question in science, right? Uh, I think there's something called Morgan's Canon, which makes you, you have to assume that if there's a simpler explanation for the event, then you have to give it, the, the answer is the simpler explanation. And and I think I cite in the book, uh, Washu the Chimpanzee, many, many years ago, it was actually in the 50s, when Washu signed uh, Waterbird, when he saw a a swan. Mm. And scientists still can't decide, was it because the chimp was signing for water and a bird or water bird as a swan? So those are the sorts of complexities that are difficult to decipher when it comes to um, whether animals communicate or not. But then there are a lot more examples in there. I think you're very well well aware of the prairie dog example. And uh, I'm not sure if any of you guys know about prairie dogs, but essentially they can can describe the world around (laughs) us. And uh, should I share a little bit yeah, yeah, about go on, that?: go on. I just love this man's research. His name is Dr. Khan Slobatchakov, and he's, been study- he's basically come up with the Rosetta, the Rosetta stone for prairie dog language. and um, he realized that uh, there are different animals with different hmm. alarm calls. so for example, if you see um, and I'm going to have to do a very poor imitation of prairie dog barks now, yeah. but you know let's say if, if they see an eagle, they'll go, ah! if they see um, a dog, they'll go, uh, if it's a wolf, uh. Now, the thing is, they never confuse the sound for wolf and dog, and you can see that in the various sonograms. Each one looks like a different sound print. So, if you actually play the sound of an eagle, uh, to a prairie dog, it'll look up into the sky, and it'll know to run away into its burrows. Long story short, he does lots of these different experiments. He starts bringing in triangles. They have a special bark for triangle, special bark for circle. And then, he starts doing something really remarkable. He starts sending in his students and they're wearing different colored t-shirts. The same student, because prairie dogs have words for fat or thin, human or other animals. And the prairie dogs would bark, tall, thin, human, green, tall, thin, human, wearing yellow. You know, I mean, it's remarkable that these creatures are describing the world around us and we are absolutely blind. And that's another form of human exceptionalism. So I, yeah, I love his work.
1: Um, okay, so let's. Uh, we've we've we talked enough about awe and wonder. <laughs> I'm afraid let's we're going to talk gonna, about
0: some doom. We we'll have
1: to get a bit dark, darker, because yeah. I think related to to all of that is the way, or or it informs your thinking about um, the food industry and the meat industry and our food supply, um, because that that is as we've touched on about um, not being cameras where our food's made you know that that's part of our collective blindness so can you expand about what you talk about that in the book our food supply.
0: Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so much about our food that we simply don't see. And um, the book starts off talking about Van Leeuwenhoek. Many of you will know who he is if you're science nerds. <clears throat> He's one of the first people to discover. He was like the father of microscopy. But at the same time, the first person to realize that there are little animalcules, right? Microbes, mm. you know, protists, creatures, microorganisms, bacteria living in our teeth. But he was also the first person to discover sperm by uh, magnifying his own ejaculate. I think that's okay to say because that's a scientific thing. So he, he, he had discovered that and really that transformed the world in a sense because today most of our uh, domesticated animals, 90 to 95% of our pigs and cattle only exist on this planet because of in vitro fertilization. In fact, all of the turkeys in the world are only bred through in vitro fertilization, right? And that is because we hijacked their biology. These are animals that no longer have sex and we figured out how to do that thanks to the discovery of sperm. Thanks in one sense, but no thanks in another sense, because today we are killing and slaughtering about 70 billion domesticated animals. And in terms of vertebrate biomass, they make up a large percentage of of all the creatures we have on earth, right? In terms of wild animals, there's only 3% of wild animals, three to 4% left in terms of vertebrate uh, land mammal biomass. The rest is humans. And these creatures that we have created to kill
1: um, and that that also comes on to climate change and biodiversity so you know the the, the, the huge farming that we're doing for beef in particular um, by putting all um, cattle huge giant cattle farms um, and most of them are, are actually contained now aren't they in sheds um, uh, in, in Brazil in South America in particular um, this is really driving down biodiversity, but it's it's driving up emissions, and, and uh, you know our our demand for, for animal products is uh, has just gone out of control. You mentioned that number, the amount of animals we kill each year, in mm-hmm. you know multiple billions.
0: And that's not counting fish, of course. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so, you know, how do we act on? If we start to understand, okay, we, we've been living in a bubble here. This, the way we're eating has been too easy mm. um, and we've just gotten used to it. How do we kind of use this knowledge to try and change things?
0: Well, I think the first thing, and as I think you probably know because you helped me review this book, uh, the book doesn't, it's not a preachy book Mm -hmm. in any sense, you know, I, I really want to get at things in a different way. So I want to actually examine why we don't pay attention to things, not just say that, you know, we're blind to the burger, certainly, and we're blind to the devastation of the ecosystems behind the burger. But also, there are reasons why we don't like to look deeply, right? And I talk about uh, the scientists who call themselves disgustologists mm. because we kind of move away from things that disgust us, things like slaughterhouses, things like rot, things like disease. We move that into the far boroughs away from our cities so that we no longer see it physically even near us. But then there are dangers because when our meat or the things that we eat become diseased or rotting or the people who are working in those factories are actually getting amputated on a regular basis because the barreling line is coming down so quick with all those animals. For example, birds, they're, they're processed as BPM, birds per minute, because yeah. there's hundreds of them coming down the line yeah. at a time. And those are unsanitary conditions. And those are things that we should want to see again. But because they've been so distalized, we kind of keep our, our sight away from it. But I think instead of saying to people, no, 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 don't do this, I think it's actually much more revealing to just peer back the layers, remove the veil from people's eyes, and then they can, they can see it for themselves. Yeah.
1: Well, I was gonna ask about how writing the book changed you. Um, how did it, I mean, were you vegetarian or vegan before you, um, before you wrote that chapter? And so that's one thing, but then in other, other ways, how, how has it affected you, the process of, popping this reality bubble.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, there's 10 different big reality bubbles in the book. And so for each one, I was going through a different phase. So the very first one is uh, all about size and scale and the fact that everything is built to human size. But as I was saying to you in this microscopic world, I was living in a very different reality. I was going to work, but I found myself always looking at the grass and looking at like the little tiny creatures that would be inside. And I'd be sitting there alone in my room, sometimes writing in the study and i'd know that everything around me was alive every surface was alive and it was very trippy because yeah. you know i mean you feel like a bit of a weirdo when you're doing that you know but i was just becoming fundamentally aware of different realities and as you know, the beginning of the book starts off with a woman named Anne Hodges who's struck by a meteorite one day when she's just lying on the couch. And so she was smacked by the universe really right in the, well, right in the thigh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. When the meteorite just, just shot right through her, her living room and bounced off a radio and, and she's got this big black bruise on her. And she became aware of a whole other reality that we exist within too. So that's the kind of weird shit I was going yeah. through when I was writing the book. But so, yeah, I mean, I guess the, in terms of the vegetarian thing, uh, I, I think I had been able to see that a little bit uh, already. But I was constantly learning and I was constantly... I mean, you don't get into this sort of work as we do unless you love being fascinated all the time. So I was constantly surprised about how much I didn't know about the basics of the way the world worked. And, and I, that's what I hope to reveal in this book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and about, um, about climate change, what, what's been the thing that surprised you about um, our energy supply and what we, what we don't know about that, which perhaps is just becoming a bit... We're becoming more aware of it now with the climate crisis. We're hearing much more about it. People are getting on board about it. Mm. But, but what, is, what is something that we haven't been so aware of or we've been deliberately hiding from ourselves about energy, where it comes from?
0: Um, the whole impetus for chapter six of this book, which is the energy chapter, is the fact that working as a, a science presenter for all this, <clears throat> all this time, I've had a chance to chat with really smart people. That's been my job. Talk it's to smart people. Job, it's the best yeah. thing about this yeah. job, It's the best thing about this job. But I would ask these really smart people a really simple question, what is oil? And I would find that nine out of 10 of these super duper smart people had no idea what oil was. And then you would ask them a question like, well, why is all the oil in the Middle East? And they wouldn't know. And you'd be like, this is the most important fuel. You know, it fuels everything, our entire global economy. It's the reason we have climate change. And people wouldn't have an understanding of where this substance, this prehistoric substance came from, nor would they have- Why, why? Tell
1: us why. Why Why is it all in the Middle East?
0: What? Oh, that's, I don't want to give everything away, but it has to do with an ancient ocean called Tethys. That's what it has to do Mm. with, yeah. And a big black death that took place a long time ago that killed a lot of critters. Yeah,
1: I mean, is that... Um, so, th- so that's one thing about not knowing that, even the experts don't know too much about it, but then there's deliberate... Well, when, when there's climate denialism and there's other forms of sort of outright denialism, like anti-vaxxing, um, which you have a lot in Canada...
0: Oh, it's painful. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, I mean, and, and flat earthers. I was talking about this in the office the other day with um, someone who'd, who'd met someone who was denying that... the Earth was round. (laughs) And yeah, I mean, it's it's just absolutely mind-boggling, but what's driving these people?
0: Well, those are some of the internet bubbles, aren't they? Mm. Those aren't things that I discuss in this book, but we're starting to see the formation of political thought bubbles, where once you get trapped in one of them and it's a reinforcing bubble, you just keep getting the same information. The algorithms on YouTube will keep feeding you more to support Mm. your ideas. And we know that people tend to believe and and respond to information that they already have a a little bit of information about. So they're more likely to be even more receptive to it. Mm. And so that's how you kind of get this idea. But I don't know if you saw Beyond the Curve, which was a really wonderful documentary about flat earthers. And there's an experiment at the end, and the flat earthers do it and they can see for themselves with their own eyes that the earth is curved. And yeah. it's a beautiful moment, uh, a big revelatory moment for them that you can actually prove what's true. If only true we and could take true. everyone up there. No yeah. kidding, no yeah. kidding.
1: <clears throat> um, so lots of the book um, is, looks at things that we've created like deliberate bubbles that we've made for our own gain. You know, we've talked about um, global food supply, um, there's there's a food supply, there's energy, um, the way we exploit the world, really. Um, Is this a a kind of um, subtle dig at capitalism, basically, (coughs) uh, at late stage capitalism? Is this a critique of what we've done wrong as a species in that sense?
0: I think one of the key chapters in this book is the chapter on ownership. And I I make one point in there, which is, something that fascists and socialists do in the same vein, whether you're left or right, is uh, the question is always shuffling between uh, who should own the world, not if we should own the world at all. I think the second question is the more important question. So that's why I think that it's not political in that sense. I think that both capitalists and socialists assume that we have these extreme rights over nature that I would certainly question. Um, Throw it all over. <laughs> I just want to tip the table. Well, yeah,
1: but um, how do you how do we engage with politics when some politicians what don't won't they're not flat earthers as much as such? Well, they're not flat earthers. Yeah. But they do <laughs> deny or shy away from things that we, we would consider. Well, that's a scientific fact. You know, this is exactly. this, this evidence here. And famously, we had um, Michael Gove, who's a cabinet minister. Um, A few years ago saying, you know, the the British public have had enough of experts, you know, so how do we, what do we do when we've got that sort of problem that we're butting up against?
0: I think it becomes very problematic when uh, fact is reshaped into opinion, right? Because Mm. there are things that are scientific facts and now you're starting to see politicians twist the idea that facts are just another alternative idea or an alternative truth. Right. And that's why I think that this particular scientific lens is a way of looking at things because once you can see with your own eyes, like Van Leeuwenhoek said, that there are you know, bacteria in your mouth and you can physically see them, when you can physically show people that the world works in one way, then an alternative truth doesn't work quite as well. But then again, we talk about Galileo, or I talk about Galileo in the very beginning of the mm. book and he I don't know if you wanna share that little moment can I read that little sure. clip yeah. that he says? Because I kind of like what Galileo says about this. Um, don't mind me. I'm so sorry that I'm ner- nerding out and reading yeah. my own book here. But, um, but he makes this point about how frustrated he was by people. Because no matter what you did. Okay, So in 1632, in dialogue concerning the two chief world systems, Galileo, father of science, said... In the long run, I won't do it that way. In the long run, (laughs) my observations have convinced me that some men, reasoning preposterously, first establish some conclusion in their minds which either because of it being their own or because of their having received it from some person who has their entire confidence impresses them so deeply that one finds it impossible ever to get it out of their heads. Such arguments in support of their fixed idea as they hit upon themselves or hear set forth by others, no matter how simple and stupid these may be, gain their instant acceptance and applause. On the other hand, whatever is brought forward against it, however ingenious and conclusive, they receive with disdain or hot rage if indeed it does not make them ill. Beside themselves with passion, some of them would not be backward even about scheming to suppress and silence their adversaries. This was written in 1632.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, amazing. Um, I mean, I I was just looking at my quote here on the back of the book about the the Matrix. Um, You you mentioned the Matrix um, in in it. And and here I've, you know, I've something about Neo, you know, in The Matrix, Neo takes the red pill and his eyes are opened to the world he's been living in. Um, but I'm just going to be a bit devil's advocacy sure. here, right? Um, there's that, that, that other character in The Matrix who I think is unfairly treated. He's the one who wants to be plugged back in. And he says, no, I'm, I don't want this horrible new world. Let, put me back in The Matrix. Right. Right. So isn't it better that we just live in this n- nice world where we don't have to know about all this reality stuff that you talk about, you know?
0: Well, if impending doom were not on the way, then I mm. would say certainly.
1: Yeah.
0: But, <laughs> but, you know, that's the whole thing, right? You know, everything, all are, one of the ways that I've been t- describing the apocalypse and the apocalypse in terms of it being um, our biodiversity <clears throat> loss and climate change right now is that the threats are invisible, right? And yeah. And really, What is scary is the same thing that makes a poltergeist scary, is that you can't see it. You know, if I could throw a towel on a poltergeist, I wouldn't be quite as scared of it, but I don't know where the threats are coming from, and they're magnified in that sense. And so not looking and not seeing, especially when you have a threat that is growing, is very, very dangerous. So yeah, plugging out and being like uh, one of those Smith characters, wasn't it? Or no, it was the other one. I know who you're talking about, who wanted to eat the nice juicy steak.
1: Yeah, who just yeah, just didn't yeah. care, yeah. yeah.
0: I think in this time and in this day and age, it's just fundamentally a very, very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, we want more Neos. We want more Keanu Reeves
1: right now. <laughs> we always want more <laughs> Keanu Reeves, yeah. Yeah, <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah I think that's, that's something that you, you do really well in the book is that um, it makes it hard to resist, and, and you don't want to resist it either. It's like, it, you know... It, it is f- fascinating to, to have your eyes open to this world. And there's, there are all these little bits of wonder and awe and like fascinating detail throughout. So, you know, you, you've managed to do both things very well, which is, oh, you know, that's so
0: kind.
3: Which is Thank a great, you.
1: great work. Um, let's talk about time and space a bit. Um, how, how are they part of our reality bubble? Shall I read out one of these um, bits sure. about time?
0: Well, time for me, I'll just give you kind of a little bit of background yeah. on why I included time and space, because I see these as our civilizational blind spots. We have these ideas about time and space, and it's a lot like, uh, you know, it's a lot like that quote of, we know not the, uh, the fish knows not the water in which it swims, right? Time and space, these are the dimensions that we inhabit. And yet we don't have a sense of how come we've become so ruled by them, you know? And uh, And it's really because we broke down time and space into these really almost absurd level measurements. Right. And you can, you can share a couple of those because I think that most people don't think of time and space in this way, but this is how scientists see time and space.
1: Yeah, so um, I don't know if every, everyone, anyone knows how a second is actually defined, um, but here's something that we've got here. In 1967, an international consortium dis- defined a second as the duration of, uh, what, 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between two <laughs> hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium one thirty three atom. <laughs> I mean, okay.
0: not what we use in everyday parlance. Yeah. You're late by yeah. how many seconds? Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: so, so yeah, but 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 we have to have um, definitions that are are measurable that we can that we can work with, and that's and if we had a, a second definition that was like you know one heartbeat or something it would be ver- it would vary so much we wouldn't be able to do anything with it so it's enabled it's it's helped science uh, it's helped human knowledge in a, in a huge way right
0: It depends on who's using it for what, right? Mm. Like when you think about GPS systems, for instance, if you're off by 38 microseconds a day, which is what would happen if we weren't factoring for special relativity and general relativity, um, we'd be off by 10 kilometers a day. I think I remember that correctly. Um, but yeah, so we need precision for some things. Like in the past, before we had perfect timing, people would have to just say, well, we're meeting at dawn, right? You yeah, know? Yeah. Or even if you think about the days before we all had cell phones, we would have to kind of make arrangements to meet. So people certainly could still meet. But for most of time, time was measured by events, by the, you know, the time it takes for a locust to cook or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, those different examples that I give in the book. And that gave people a lot more temporal freedom. Whereas today we have a lot of temporal rigidity and we live these increasingly nine to five lives for some people who, like in Japan, are suffering from a condition called overworked death. We're at, it's called karashi, right? And yeah. you lived in Japan, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Because you would know more about it than I would.
1: <clears throat> yeah, this was a thing that, um, that came about. Like or It it popped up in the news when I was there, um, this thing that people had been like literally worked to death because and they were afraid to go home and, um, you know, their bosses would stay incredibly late. And so no one wanted to leave home before the boss. And so people became massively, massively overworked. So, um, yeah, it became a it became a kind of buzz buzzword thing that was popping up. I don't know if anything's been done to tackle it now. I, has,
0: I, I read uh, from uh, Jake Edelstein, he's been following up on it and a little bit has been done to yeah. tackle it from my understanding, but I do feel that, you know, regimented and applied to human time, you know, we have our own circadian rhythms, all these animals have times, all of nature has a time. And one thing that all of you will start to notice, especially that I've noticed here in London, is time is starting to grow increasingly out of whack. If you walk outside of this building, you'll see cherry blossoms blooming on the 6th of February, mm. something is going very, very awry with our time. Yeah,
1: yeah. And you're speaking as someone jet-lagged as well.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, okay, let's, let's, let's go to, to space now. So With its own absurd definition. Yeah, so, um, you know, how does, if, if time is one way that um, we don't quite understand the reality of the world, like, what, how does, what's the corresponding examples for space? How does that work?
0: Well, space, and, and what I get into the, in the book is the way in which we've um, measured and carved up space in so many ways. And one of the things that I write about in there is this notion of ad colium, right? Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm saying it properly. It's in Latin. I did it for the ebook, book but yeah. <laughs> who knows? And this was this notion in the past that we had forever and ever that if you bought property, if I bought a piece of land, let's say this piece of land here, I owned it all the way up until the heavens, and I owned it all the way right down to hell, right down to the base of the earth. Well, we certainly know that that is not the case today. In fact, the queen probably owns most of the land beneath your, beneath your buildings, isn't yeah. that correct? Yeah. And then just above all the airspace is actually progressively carved out and owned by different people, and you may not be aware of who owns what above you as well. And then how did we start carving out all this time, like all this space that surrounds us? And it all comes down to measurement.
1: And we have this uh, definition of the meter here, which is uh, kind of like we've just talked about for the second. Um, So a meter also has a kind of crazily precise um, and and very definite measurement. Uh, The true or invariable meter is defined as a length equal to 1,650,763.73 wavelengths of the orange light emitted by the Krypton Krypton atom of mass eighty six in vacuo.
0: And you never use that at IKEA, right? <laughs> never, never.
1: Um, just talking about what, what's under London reminded me. Of, I was going in. Um, I went in the, the Crossrail tunnel as it was being dug out mm. under London. And I'm and waiting uh, for that. <laughs> well, we all waited. For <laughs> <that>. <laughs> and um, uh, when I went into it was under Hyde Park, and uh, yeah, the guy, one of the guys who was showing me around, was saying how how much of the land is owned by, um, by different um, um,
0: consortiums yeah, and companies. The uh, University
1: and of Oxford or different groups who own it um, and, um, and there's a lot of sort of military stuff down there as well so many tunnels under London mm. that, are, that have been dug out during the war for um, evacuees to go down. Um,
0: and there's a consequence to all of this though, right? And that ties back to the very first question that you asked me about human exceptionalism. Mm. If we own all this, we're kind of forgetting all the other creatures, the 8.7 million other animal species that we own the planet with too, that don't seem to have any rights over any of the, uh, of any of the provinces of real estate that we've declared.
1: Yeah. Um, all right, look, I don't know if, if there's any other, um, bits from one of the your favorite chapters you want to mention but before we um, I've I've got some
0: I can't think of anything I'm jet-lagged okay
1: Okay, well let's let's try and end with some some message of hope and um, agency that we can we can take from understanding the world in a better way so, let, you know, let's be more Neo and less like that other guy whose name we don't know. Yeah, exactly. No, what, what, what can we do to equip ourselves better?
0: Oh, dear. There's so many things that we can do. And um, I have to say that there was only one big one big section of my book that was cut by my editor and it was the epilogue, which was called Solutions. So there's no solutions in my book and there's a very big reason for that and that is because there are solutions everywhere. Mm. And um, I, on Daily Planet, hosted the show for a decade and it was an hour long science show and I featured solutions on that show every single day. And I, I like to say that really solutions surround us like unclaimed lottery tickets. Uh, a, a lack of solutions is not a problem. If anybody wants to look for solutions, there's so many books on those out there. So this book was really in particular about learning to see. But at the same time, I think a historical perspective is also something that's really critical. And one thing that I take personally is the experience of my grandfather who was a rebel. Um, And he was also around in, you know, uh, after the Second World War. And one thing I think is important for us to all remember is that um, we're all afraid in the times that we're living in today. But my grandfather wasn't alive, was alive in a time that wasn't um, nearly catastrophic. He was alive in a time that was totally (coughs) catastrophic. And he was surrounded by death and famine and destruction and decay. And in one generation and in perhaps just two, They've rebuilt the world that we live in today. So there's still room for tremendous hope.
1: Wow. Um, that's a fantastic message to, uh, to end on. Um, there's, there's absolutely tons in here. We've, t- we've touched on a fair bit of it. We've well, <laughs> we'll touched on the yeah. tiny bit of it. Yeah. Um, but let's, uh, let's see if we open the floor up now to questions and, um, and, and see where we go from that. Sounds great. Yeah. Um, gentleman here was first with his hand up. Thank you. Um, there's an evolving science, which is behavioural economics, which very much delves into what, what I define as the ultimate flaw of humanity, which is how we, how we are unable to balance the emotional versus the rational. Um, and that is when you'll see the emotional will drive beyond the rational, flat earthers or whatever it is, something that we react to that is greater than you see in any other species. How does that help with the feeling of hope when... If you are rationally faced with something, as a species, you are still capable of doing something that can harm yourself, ultimately, because something else is overriding it.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I really wrote this book as a combination between sort of facts and wonder and enchantment, because I'm using the exact same technique that you're talking about, right? I'm trying to use an emotional override over the factual, rational self. in terms of economics though, I think that that's, I think that, I don't know that that's something that I would necessarily cover from a scientific angle. What do you think, Rowan?
1: Well, yeah. Because we do
0: the same sort of stuff.
1: Mm, um, yeah, it's funny, economics is a, is a weird thing. And um, I, I don't know if this is quite to the point, but um, I was trying to get my head around quantitative easing the other day. Right. Because like, um, I never quite understood it. Um, so I asked this economist from Princeton you know, famous economist. And he gave me a long explanation of what it was. And I went away going, I actually still don't know what it is. And I yes. recorded it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, does, does he really and, You know? You've got to really understand something yourself if, in order to explain it to someone else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but then I phoned up the Bank of England and asked them, and I and actually got a great explanation from it.
0: Just share it just briefly. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, don't, don't, do Okay,
1: I'll wait, I'll wait. Yeah. But um, I, did, I did get a grasp on, on what it means. But the whole point of that little anecdote is that
3: mm-hmm.
1: I think um, it's, it is imprecise, economics, and it's not, it's not something that, I mean, as scientists argue, and there's nuance and there's different interpretations, but... In economics, it's on a whole different scale of, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of it. And um, yeah, it becomes much more, um, you know, personality driven or politically driven. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, I just have to throw my hands up a bit. Yeah,
0: because it. it is so strange. I mean, when you look at, you know, the entire global economy is fundamentally run on greed and fear, right? And that's really the index that we're constantly monitoring and we rely so much on it to our own detriment. And, you know, whenever I'm watching this World Economic Forum stuff and everybody running off to Davos, and I just don't think that economists are the people who should be solving problems that really are about physics.
1: I did ask um, the Bank of England, um, you know, can't we just quantitatively ease a, a huge amount of money, a trillion dollars into existence like we've done, Mm. during di- different crises and, and then spend it on the climate crisis.
0: That's exactly what they suggest, though, isn't it, right? Instead of using it for, say, mortgages and uh, right. creating another bubble, if we actually used it for the green economy, yeah. it might work.
1: But, um, but there's no legislation for that. Right. So they're just not allowed to. But, you know, theoretically, it could be done, and we do do it for other things. So um, there was a question here. Was, <laughs> is there a, a micro... Just some,
2: Oh great! Okay, sure. About, uh, oh, right here we go. This is better. Um, the problem of people—you talk about the flat earthers, but people who are not really as crazy as that, who are persuaded by obviously other people, their friends, their their bubbles—they um, really don't want to know the facts. They actually don't want to know them. Mm-hmm. What I mean, you've one talking about solutions. What do you do? I mean, I've met people in in America and so on um, who are Trump supporters, oh, yeah, I no, say no, that? I know and saying. they come out with all sorts of very, very peculiar ideas. One thing in their lives which has persuaded them that they love him. And it's such an irrational thing that they've thought of. And you try and tell them all sorts of other things and they don't want to listen. So how do you persuade them? This is talking about the emotional stuff. And some of it on the climate change thing Um, I was listening to um, a discussion about it, I think, yesterday or this morning, that it's not in the interests of certain manufacturers um, to do the R&D to help the climate change situation. There is no money in it for them, he said. So there's a selfish thing about this. It means governments have to do it. And, of course, that's not popular because you're taking the money away Mm -hmm. from all the other things that people want. So there are two things there.
0: (laughs) Well, the bubble eventually bursts on its own, doesn't it? You know what I mean? I think that there's always going to be industries and corporate interests that want to sow doubt. We saw that with the cigarette industry until lots of people started getting cancer and dying. And, you know, we're going to start to see... um, Mass starvation, you know, I mean, for example, when I think about, you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night is the fact that we've lost 50% of our coral reefs around the world already at 1.1 degrees Celsius. And what's scary about that isn't the fact that coral reefs are just beautiful, which they are if you're a diver and you're just going to miss the absolute glory of them, but the fact that they are actually the homes for, for small fish and those fish are the fisheries, and two billion people rely on coastal fishing, and those people are going to begin to starve. And that's when that reality bubble is going to burst, and people aren't, you know what I mean? When we talk about this, when we talk about the fear, when we talk about what's fearful versus what's rational, and you look in Australia, all these people who, you know, obviously were big proponents of the Adani mine. Well, after 1.25 billion of their animals have been incinerated and tens of thousands of their homes have gone, when that bubble bursts, they begin to change their minds. I hope, and I wrote this book, I mean, Rowan knows this, this book would have, it took me one year to write the book. And it should have taken me one year to write the book, but it took me five years to think about the book because I spent so much time trying to not write about the environment. In fact, I used the word environmental only a few times and I tucked it in there for fun by the end because I could, because I so didn't want to tell you a story that you thought you were gonna hear. Because I know that if I do that and if I preach, nobody's gonna listen, everybody tunes out. And so you're right in that sense. You have to approach things from an emotive, a storytelling way, um, because not everybody responds to facts. Some people do, some people don't. Um, but facts are not opinions.
1: Yeah, it's something we, we struggle with a lot when we how mm. to talk about how to write about climate change. Um, do you, I mean, what's been the, typically the approach has been to um, emphasize the wonder of, of the natural world. And, and this is the Attenborough approach, of basically. Is, like, yeah. oh my God, it, it, and it is, it's incredible, blah, blah. blah. But then there's a danger of glossing over the... What's happening. Yeah. And, and I think that people are, like, now emphasizing a bit more um, not just what's happening but what might happen, you know, what, what really the worst-case scenarios, or even some of the, not the worst-case scenarios, the scenario we're on, which is really actually incredibly bad. You know, um, so there, there's been a... I think there has been a switch to... Um, talking a bit more about some of the the dark stuff. So it's it's kind of essential.
0: And I think the other key point as well is that it isn't just, you know, finger wagging don't do this because of this. I think the big thing that has been missing is the ability to connect the dots, right? Because we live within so many different ecosystems and cycles, right? And so much of this book is about the cycles of birth, life, you know, birth, death, and, and, and rebirth, and that's really food, energy, and waste. Those yeah. are those three big cycles, and we've broken those cycles, and, um, and it's not that we need to fix it. Nature already has those cycles, and we just have to begin to, you know, live in alignment with them again.
1: Um, yeah, there's one at the back there, and then there's a lady in front.
3: Thanks for a great talk. Uh, my name's Alex, and I'm starting a storytelling society which is going to inspire the radical social change we need by telling thrilling tales from better futures. Wow. And it's called wow. Solarpunk Stories. Uh, so I might have a certain paradigm bias in terms of all the question I'm going to ask, which is that there was a paper done some years ago called Sell the Sizzle, and there's a lot of other... <laughs> Uh, neuroscientific and cognitive research, which says that telling people how bad it's going to be if we don't act on climate change merely triggers the response right. of passivity and denial. Mm. And what we need to do is inspire people with right. enticing visions of how much better the future could be, that excites them to go towards it. So, like Martin Luther King didn't say, like, "I have a nightmare,"
1: mm. yeah. but
3: um, <laughs> but what I was going to hit at was that. In terms of your research, so it's, it's combining the story with hope, but also with a vision, with, with a vision of a solution and putting that forward. But what's your research indicating next? This might just be feeding my own no,
0: paradigm think, bias think... and bubble. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm not going to give away the end of the book, but I will say that the end of the book does have a surprise ending and a twist ending. (coughs) But I think that there's other people in science fiction that are starting to do, and you probably are much more aware of this than I am. Um, But, you know, there's been this whole range of dystopian sci-fi for a long period of time. And this is us telling our stories of doom and gloom, whereas there's a whole other new area that's called solar punk. Is that not right? And that's really like, oh, so you know. what Do you want... Exactly. So, yeah, oh, wow. so that, okay. oh, well, gosh, we should chat later then. Yeah, I've never heard of this is a this is a really nice way of envisioning the world. And when I talked to my mentor, I was like, what should I do next? And he's like, you need to write a book about utopia. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and is that what you're doing next?
0: No, I'm going to write it about power.
1: <laughs> <Ooh>.
0: <laughs> the illusions of power. Yeah, that's uh, the next awesome. one, I think.
1: Um, yeah, and there was a question. Hey, uh, the
2: question I have for you is: You talked about your grandfather and hope.
0: Oh, hello.
2: <laughs> and and hope, um, and uh, what he create. What you know, what they were living through, which was very real. Um, they didn't have social media, Twitter, Facebook, which is just a curse. But you know, any of those social media channels that currently seems to be feeding so much of that flat Earth theory type approach. So uh, my question to you is, that's a reality bubble for a significant proportion of the world. And we're talking about kids, not just you know, at, at all ages, all generations,
0: uh, what, what, what to do, really? Well, I think there's two sides to that. I mean, on the flip side of that, we're a species now that for the first time can communicate at the speed of light. And there's a very big reason why you saw 7.7 million people get up off their butts in March last September in climate marches around the world. And we have never seen that kind of mass mobilization in the history of humanity. So that's a huge way in which, you know, being able to be in touch and being able to be in touch and be awake and be mobilized Um, can make a huge difference. It's not just those, that's the thing, right? It's actually a saddened state when we're all just sort of sitting there isolated in our own worlds. And that's when you see fascism rise is when we are all atomized. But when people start to gather in the streets and uh, and demand change, that's the only time things ever change. And that's what we're starting to see now. So there's tremendous momentum. I'm actually really encouraged by that.
1: just to add something to that, I, I, I was talking to Christiana Figueres uh, last week. So she's, she was the um, UN um, ambassador for the IPCC um, during the 2015 um, Paris Climate Accord. So she was in charge of the negotiations, and she was the one that got that agreement over the line. And it was the, the most important climate agreement that we've had uh, until the one that, uh, later this year in, in Glasgow. Um, and, and I asked her the similar thing, like, how do, what, what can we do we, you know, if we've got um, the US is pulling out of Paris? Um, you know, what, what do we, we, we're not making emissions cuts fast enough. Like, how do we keep motivated? I know we've got Greta Thunberg and we've got the, these millions of people marching. And, and she was saying, she said something great, which is that you're living now in the most important time in all of human history mm-hmm. – And and this is the time for you and your children and everyone you know, you can make a difference. And not just in in this 10 years, this is the absolutely most important time. And and I thought that's a really energizing like um, and vital thing to say. And and, and so, you know, I think that's a good thing to just to to draw from. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and to follow up on that, you know, Uh, We did this in World War II. We did see, you know, mobilization on a mass scale, right? Industry, infrastructure that was able to happen in a period of 10 to 20 years. We can absolutely do that. And one thing that I do like to share, you know, quite often in my talks, and I I think many of you know, how many of you here have heard of the Extinction Rebellion? Everybody. That's the best thing ever. I went
1: to school. One of of the the guys who, um, one of the two co-founders was at my school. Which one? Um, he's called Simon Bramwell. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's not the famous one. Roger, there's Roger Allen. Uh, there's, no, yeah, there's Roger there's Allen.
0: several, but it's the yeah. great thing about the Extinction Rebellion primarily is it's actually a leaderless organization. Right. And, and while you guys may know a lot about what's happened in the UK, I don't know if you know or not, but there's over 700 chapters around the world now in like 80 countries. Um, so it's everywhere. And I'm so proud because XRUBC, which is my alma mater where I did my undergraduate degree, Just recently, this last month, these kids were uh, doing die-ins outside of the president, who's an awesome guy, President Santo Ono, I really like him, but they were doing die-ins outside of his his office. And then they staged a hunger strike in January. UBC has a $1.2 billion fund. This group of ragtag kids got them to divest them, all of the fossil fuels. It's 100% fossil fuel free. And I'm just like so impressed.
1: Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it's stories like that, Um, those sorts of positive and stories that show we can make a difference, even when there's uh, inactivity at a a high level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Any other questions around the place here? Yep, there's one at the back here, (coughs) excuse me.
3: (coughs) Thank you. I know you're short of time, so I'll keep it brief. Um, It's an incredibly interesting thesis. Do you think you could have written it hypothetically, at any point in human history, or is there something uniquely now about it?
0: It's 100% written for this moment. And you'll see why by the end of the book. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm so sorry for the short answer related to that. Yeah.
1: Um, And do you wanna just pass the microphone on there?
3: I wondered about your your comment about ownership earlier on. I was just looking up uh, Alfred Wallace Russell, that's right. The co-inventor of evolution with Darwin became the first president of the land nationalization campaign and a socialist. But part of his reasonable motivation was uh, to sensibly deal with land and the environment. Uh, But you kind of threw away that as a silly idea. Um, What do you think the sensible politics of land and the environment is if it's not human beings working together to do it, given that Wallace did this?
0: I, well, I think that um, you know, working with WWF Canada for eight years, um, we're a science-based organization, but what's really wonderful is we're also a very indigenous knowledge-based organization. And I think there's so much when we start looking at uh, decolonized conservation, that we can learn from the ways in which indigenous societies have really had a very cooperative relationship with uh, so many other living creatures as part of the ecosystem and land management. And uh, I would definitely say that those are the areas that I would explore because they've worked well for thousands and thousands of years. Right? Even when we saw, for example, um, some of the First Nations, the Aboriginal people in Australia, when they were talking about the fires, they've been burning fires in those areas for a long time, but they were doing it in a very particular way. And they're like, the way we're doing it is actually destructive and not restorative. So there's a lot that we can learn um, from our indigenous friends.
1: Yep, there's a question here. Can you give us three the three best ways of bursting the bubble? One, read the book.
0: <laughs> yes, thanks. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's one, two, and three, because uh, I spent a long time on that. But um, in terms of the... I think we need to see beyond the ordinary, right? Uh, I think, and, and this is where we started this with the glass of water in the very beginning, right? Um, we take a lot of everything around us for granted, and I often I, I tweeted this a while ago, so I'm happy to, to share it again, but like, quite often people are amazed when they're in buildings like this or they go to Sotheby's and they hold something in their hands that's 500 years old. And for me, I marvel at this water because I know that this water is billions of years old, and I know that this water is older than the sun, or yeah, that's what they've said, right? It's older than the sun. Um, And they've said that really this water, scientists tell us that this water is the same water that has always been here on Earth. And this water has been a a cloud, and this water has been a wave, and this water has been an iceberg, and this water has been a, a river rushing out to sea many, many, many millions of times before it enters you and me. And so really to have a profound sense of wonder for the world and to not take everything for granted is one really important way to burst the bubble. The other is to read the book and the other is to read the book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We say in a much less poetic way, which is that the water's been through every grandma in London (laughs) at least four four times. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the question here.
3: Are there any drawbacks to bursting reality bubbles? Might people who sense that their bubble is about to burst be panic and uh, clutch onto older ways of thinking more frantically? I mean, is there groundwork that's necessary to help people to give up on whatever bubbles of perception they're holding onto?
0: That's a really good question. And I think, yes, bur- bursting bubbles always hurts because once you're inside of the bubble, you have the illusion that you're in a prosperous world, but it doesn't actually hit you until it bursts. If you think about tech bubbles or real estate bubbles, right? everybody says you could see it coming. You could see it coming. Everybody is warning the people inside of the bubble, and the people inside the bubble think they can ride the wave a little longer, and it's Mm. always those people who don't get out of there fast enough who end up suffering.
1: But you do see um, some people are, are aware of the bubble. So in the, in the fossil fuel industry, they're, they're well aware of it, and they're doing all they can to prolong their bubble.
0: Yeah. Um, Whereas, for example, in, in, in the insurance bubble, they're doing something very different, right? All the people who are, who are money lenders for insurance policies, they're quite aware that you don't, yeah. you know, you don't want to start insuring everybody who's got a coastal home.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, um, the Miami beachfront, the whole of the coast you know, that, that's becoming uninsurable. Like exactly. people can't insure their homes there anymore. And um, there's a whole nother crisis about to break there when people start, like, getting their money out from there. And, you know, what's going to happen then? Don't know.
0: Yeah, exactly. But that's what I always wonder. You know, for the people who are the true climate change deniers, I'm like, go buy some coastal land in Florida then. You know what I mean? But, I mean, I don't want to hurt them or anything, but I'm like, if you really believe it's okay, why aren't you investing in all that Well, property? I don't understand yeah. this
1: because, you know, like Donald Trump has golf courses in, in and Florida. And
0: a, he gets, yeah. You know, like,
1: yeah. they, and they, they've been flooded. Mm. You know, some of his property and his hotels are, are suffering from this. So, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a mystery. Yes. Let's say. Uh, any other questions here? Yeah, there's one here. I think we've got a bit more time before we wrap up.
2: Um, hi there. As a, um, former, a former scientist and now a journalist, writer, one of the things I remember when I was studying uh, in university was that within months, sometimes within years, every single science you come across is disproved or changed. What do you do about that? Does it's that so question go through your head all the time?
0: I can't tell you how frustrating it is to write a book when science is changing. And mostly science is updating, right? Cuz it's not like a blog. It's not like a, an Do you know who hates you when you do that? Your editor. Your yeah. editor hates you because you're like, oh, no, I have to add this little thing in. I have to. And that's what I did right up until the, now, the ebook, yeah. I changed the ebook when I yeah. can because there's always new science coming in and it's being updated. I mean, it's not very often that something is completely overturned or refuted, right. but that happens, too. And that's the wonderful thing about science. Right.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's um, that's that's why we've stayed in the job, basically. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you'd, you'd reach a point that you you know, and certainly at New Scientist, you know, every day, every week we're writing about stuff and it's good that it changes so we can, and we, we're getting a bit better each time. That's, that, that's how science works and, uh, you know, so yeah, I, I would agree with Zaya. It's not like um, everything is, it's very rare that something is completely overturned. It's always just a nuance or something extra or we move along a bit, so we, we ride along. Um, great, look. That's that's all, I think, for now.
0: Can I just say something? This is my first book. Thank you so much for coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, um, do do pick up a copy of the book outside. Zaya's going to be signing it out there, so you get a chance to get a signed copy. Um, I really recommend it. Um, But look, thank you very much for coming. Let's give uh, Zaya Tong a round of applause once more. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.